Good morning. My name's Ken. Normally I teach on Wednesdays and go about an hour and 15 minutes. I've told I can't go that long this morning, so we'll try and go a little bit shorter. By the way, uh, as you can tell from the screen, what we're going to be talking about is hazardous to your worldview. Uh, because what we're going to be talking about is an individual this morning that 60% of the people in the United States who say that they love the Lord and are born again do not believe this person exists. So we're going to talk about this person. By the way, did you know that this book is a supernatural book? It's full of supernatural things. But sometimes we have a tendency to downplay those events. I actually was taught that in Bible school, believe it or not. That some of the, well, we can, we can explain that away, or we can do that, or we can do this. I, I don't believe that. It's full of supernatural things, and we're going to be talking about one of those supernatural individuals this morning. And we're going to be in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. And in, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's talking about all these different nations that surround Israel at this point in time, and he's actually talking to them about what's going to happen to them. And all of a sudden, when he's talking about Tyre, which is a city-state of Phoenicia, located in Lebanon today, uh, along the coast, he all of a sudden takes a left turn and starts talking about somebody else. In fact, he he calls the the ruler of Tyre a little prince, and then all of a sudden he uses a Hebrew word that says king. So, verse 11, again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation, over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. I don't think the king of Tyre was in Eden. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I've cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I've destroyed you, O covering cherub." From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, and I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore I've brought fire from the midst of you, and it's consumed you. And I've turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all people who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you, and you've become terrified, and you'll cease forever. This individual that he starts talking about is actually, in the Bible, the first serial killer that we see explained about in the Scriptures, and he's still killing today. Just need to know that. We're going to talk a little bit about his method of operation. But to unpack this completely, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. The very beginning. So, My question when I read this is, okay, who is this divine being that he's talking about? When was he created? Because only God has existed forever. You know, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they've been around forever, but this is a created divine being. What's his name? What's the background that winds up to us seeing what we're seeing here in in Ezekiel chapter 28? And what would a reader of Ezekiel's time understand as they're looking at this? Is there any other background that we can have on this person? And and there is, by the way. 
If we go to Isaiah 14, and you have that in your notes, uh, starting with verse 12, and every time we see the word, I will, underline that. You'll see it several times. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, and then underline this, this is what God's going to do to that individual, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and they'll ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? At the very beginning of that section of scripture, we get his name. And his name is very clearly told to us, star of the morning, son of the dawn. So in the Hebrew, his name is Halel bin Sahar. That's what it means. Star of the morning, son of the dawn. We know Halel by his name given to him in the Latin version of the scriptures, the Vulgate. There his name is translated Lucifer. That's who this is. It's also referred to in the Arabic, if you're interested, as Splendid Star, but it still is translated as Lucifer. But his name is technically Halel ben Sahar. In Ezekiel right here, we see God is lamenting this individual that he created who has fallen. So looking at verse 12, and then going back to the beginning, where we see Son of Man take up the lamentation over the king of Tyre, we go back to the very beginning where in Genesis 1-1 it says God created the heavens and the earth. So I'm one of these guys who reads stuff like this and go, okay, well, when did he create the angels? When did he create these divine beings? Well, what does the Bible say about this? You know, do we have anything in the scriptures that tells us when he created them? Well, where do they live? Okay, They live in heaven, right? Could they have been living in heaven prior to heaven being created? Probably not. Since we're told in Genesis 1-1 that God created the heavens, does that mean that divine beings existed prior to the creation of the heavens? I'm going to say probably not. When did that happen? I don't know. I don't have a clock that says when the heavens and the earth were created. I don't know when Genesis 1-1 took place. But with Christ's teachings, we see evidence everywhere that angels exist. By the way, angel is a job description. It means messenger. There are other job descriptions in the scriptures too. Principalities, powers, thrones, cherubs, seraphim. Those are all job descriptions. And in some cases, there's specific design features of these divine beings that exist. But he, Jesus spoke about holy angels and evil angels. And he spoke of them at the same way that he also spoke about the fact that he was going to rise from the dead. So as a believer in Christ, if he's talking about evil and divine angels, I'm going to believe it because Christ has never lied to me in his scriptures. He never has. And he continues to tell nothing but the truth. It's part of who he is. So look at Colossians chapter 1. Jesus uh, is explained by Paul this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And here's some information for us. By him, this is by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens 
and on earth. So everything that's in heaven he created, everything on earth he created, visible or invisible. And then we start getting job descriptions of these divine beings, whether thrones or dominions. These are, these are job descriptions that these divine beings have. You can actually see some more of them in Daniel 10, where he talks about princes. Thrones or dominions or rulers or, thor- or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Scripture clearly shows us that these divine beings were created by Jesus Christ, which makes me really wonder about the pride of this individual. Uh, We could call it hubris, if you want to use that term, in Matthew chapter 4. He tempts his own creator. He tempts the person who made him. Jesus is the one being tempted by the same person, by Hillel, Lucifer. He's also known in the New Testament as Satan, the serpent, the devil. But the one that actually gave him life tempted him. And unlike when he tempted Eve, he told Eve, and his name is another name for him we'll see in Genesis is Nahash. That's a good Hebrew term for you. It makes it kind of rolls off the back of your throat. Um, He told Eve, you can be like God. He never said that to Jesus. Why? Jesus is God. And he knew that. So he never tempts him that way. But he tempts us with the same thing today. Oh, you can be like God. You can make your own decisions. You can do what you want to do. You don't have to rely on me. You can rely, or on the Lord, rather. You can rely on yourself. The Old Testament, by the way, does not tie together this person in Genesis 3, the Nakash, to Hillel until we get to the New Testament, and then it's all tied together for us. So we see these things taking place. And even in the Old Testament, we see the term where it's related to Satan. We see it as Hasatan, which is a, do- a job description. But in the New Testament, we re- it's told, us, told to us that that guy with the job description's name is Lucifer. But unlike God, who always existed, this divine being that we're talking about, who has fallen, was created at a point in time. He did not exist prior to that taking place. The Bible routinely calls these created beings who are heavenly beings, that's where they reside, they were referred to in the scriptures as Elohim. It's kind of like, yeah, they're Elohim, and on earth you have human beings. So spiritual beings are Elohim. God, by the way, is an Elohim, but the Bible also says there is no other Elohim like God. He created them all. So we have these two groups. And what we clearly see in the scriptures is just like man has a start point, so does divine beings, angels, that's, again, a job description. But these divine beings, they, they started at a point in time. They did not exist eternally. They do not have omnipotence. They cannot know everything. They can't be everywhere at one time. But sometimes we try and say that they can be. They've been around a long time. They're very smart. But God knows what they're thinking. And that kind of shakes them up, too, because he also knows what we're thinking. As we saw in Isaiah 14, God knew what Satan was thinking. So Lucifer... And these divine beings did not exist eternally. God has. By the way, those that did not fall, the angels that are still with the Lord, they're not eternal beings either in terms of always being in existence. They'll never perish, but they were created at a point in time. And prior to the creation of heaven, we're going on the assumption there was no place for them to live. So when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1, somewhere around the same time he created all these divine beings, 
And when we looked at Colossians chapter 1, around verse 16 and 17, it shows us that they were all created at one time, simultaneously. God's not creating more angels every day. Unfortunately, contrary to the movie that everybody likes to watch at Christmas time, when a bell rings, an angel does not get its wings. Okay? They were created with that, if they have them. But they're also multidimensional beings, so whether they have wings or not, I don't know. But, uh, but we do have pictures of that in Ezekiel. We have pictures of that in Isaiah as well. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus says, talking about his second coming, that of the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. Well, we've identified that there are angels in heaven, and they don't know when Jesus is returning. So what does that tell us about the angels who got kicked out? They're clueless. They don't know. So when they start trying to use different cults, and start, well, he's coming here, and he's, they don't know. They do not know. They're all looking at the scriptures just as we are to try and understand when Jesus is returning again. But there is a scripture that tells us who was present when everything else was created. It's in the book of Job. And it's in Job 38, verses 4 to 7. In that section of scripture we see Job talking to, or God talking to Job. And God has an interesting sense of humor. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job, tell me if you have understanding. Well, Job wasn't there. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Those are terms for heavenly beings, divine beings. Sons of God, morning stars. I envision this huge stadium in heaven, and off in the distance, God's creating everything. And they're just, they're applauding while God's doing it and cheering. That's what this is telling us that's going on at that point. All of this, again, to show that at the point of creation, when we get to man being created, Lucifer had not fallen. He was still serving the Lord, doing what he'd been designed to do and what God had appointed to him to do. Genesis 1.31 tells us that. God saw all he had made, and behold, it was very good. So if Satan had fallen, he wouldn't have said it was very good. But Satan hadn't fallen yet. So it was very good. And there was morning the sixth day. So being a curious person that I am, I say, well, when did the divine beings God created fell? When did that happen? When did the angels and the cherubs and the seraphs and the powers, when did they fall? Because we know, based on what it says in Scripture, that a third of them did. Well, again, it says here in Ezekiel 28, and also in Isaiah, but you said in your heart, that's where they fell. Prior to the creation of man, they hadn't fallen. But something happened between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1. What happened? What started amongst this one divine being that we've been talking about that got him up in arms and made him foment a rebellion against his own creator? Well, remember, when God created man, he gave man dominion, right? He gave him dominion over the land, over the animals, over the fish, and I have learned that I still don't have dominion over the fish because they won't get on the hook when I want to. (laughs) But it says that we have that. Now, imagine that you're Lucifer. He is, and we'll see, he is a cherub, not a naked baby floating around with wings, but he is a throne guardian. 
his job description places him in the presence of God all the time. And he sees this, and he thought he was going to be a big honcho in God's plan. And he's not. He says, I don't like this. I was in charge of creation, and now this guy is? Adam? Really? Now, as stated before, God created these divine beings, and he did it at a time where they were also given free will. We have free will as well. Man does. God has free will. God did not create the divine beings as robots. Neither did he create us as robots. He wants us to love him and to serve him of our own free will. Unfortunately, for those who don't decide on that, their own free will is they, they don't want to be with God, and they want to be separated from him, and God will give them that for all eternity. It's called hell. But God does not want robots. Same with the divine beings. He didn't want robots. In fact, there's an interesting passage in Job talking about that. Again, back to the book of Job. Uh, one of the people commenting to Job as he's, and there's conversations going back and forth with Job constantly, three different people, four different people talk to him. But Eliphaz in Job 4, uh, verses 17 and 18 says, can mankind be, be just before God? Well, we know that's not possible without Jesus Christ dying and rising from the dead. Without a sacrifice, it's not possible. Can man be pure before his maker? Well, we know the answer to that too. He puts no trust even in his servants and against his angels, he charges error. Did you see that? There's fallen angels. By this time, there's fallen angels. He's charging them with error as well. We're not more righteous than the maker, but why would God consider me blameless when he doesn't even look at his messengers, those individuals he created who actually have seen him and are at his throne who fell, and he charges them with error as well. Only Jesus Christ took care of that for us. Jesus did not die for the divine beings. He died for us and rose from the dead for us. By the way, Eliphaz repeats that again in Job chapter 15, verses 14 to 16, and he literally says, behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, in the heavens. Uh, the heavens are not pure in his sight. So again, talking about what was going on and the fall that took place and what that did to heaven. Now, back to Ezekiel, in verse 12, it says at the end of the verse that when Lucifer was created, he had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. When God made Lucifer, he only made one Lucifer. Just like he made only one kin, and my wife says, praise the Lord, we don't want any more. That's the same, we can say that about all of us, probably. But he only made one Lucifer, and, and he, it's basically the scripture says that there was a pattern, that was, that was the pattern for Lucifer, and he was filled up with all terms of wisdom and beauty. Basically, what the scripture says is he was smart and good looking, and by the way, he knew it, because we see that in Isaiah 14. Verse 12 also tells us where does he operate? When he was initially created and serving the Lord, where did he work? What was his job environment? Well, prior to the fall, he operates at the throne of God. In fact, he's the covering angel. He's a, he's a throne guardian uh, angel, if you want to call it that. Uh, typically in the Middle Eastern area, and as also in the scriptures, throne guardians had serpent-like qualities. And there are drawings all throughout this time period when Ezekiel's teaching that shows throne guardian angels or throne guardians as serpent-like. So he's a throne guardian. We know that. We also see, secondly, in verse 13, he's in the Garden of Eden. Who else is in the Garden of Eden 
by the time we get to Genesis 3. God's there. All of his created divine beings are there, because that's where the throne of God is. This character, Hillel, Lucifer, he's there. So is Adam and Eve. Hmm. So did Adam and Eve spend time talking to these guys? Probably. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us, but they're all in the same place at the same time. And God's intent, and we see him still fulfilling that in the book of Revelation, is that for man to be on his divine counsel, ruling and reigning with him. That's what he has as a future for us as believers. So also the pre-incarnate Christ is there. Everybody's there. And we get a physical description of Lucifer in verse 13. He's a cherub, not a naked baby, okay? That's the medieval artist's vision. Uh, If you want to see what they actually look like, go to Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 2. You get a description from Ezekiel saying what they look like. But the cherub's work, again, is they work in the presence of God, right in his presence. And remember, his title, Son of the Morning, Ben-Sahar, is a designation of an angel prior before his moral fall. Lucifer means bright. It also means shiny one. Just like Nahash, or Nahash, in Genesis 3, also can mean shining one, not just serpent. So back to verse 13 and 14, you were in Eden, the garden of God, and then we get all these jewels that are described. Okay, Is he talking about him being physically covered in jewels, or does that mean something else? Well, in most cases, the, it, it's talking about something that's shiny. You look at a bunch of jewels off in the distance and it has this shiny appearance and this shiny appearance and this shiny appearance and depending upon how he moves in the sun, he looks like this or he looks like that. And he's trying to give it to you in a description that, uh, in, his, in the terms that Ezekiel had in 530 B.C. that we could understand. Now, if he was writing it today, he might say, well, you know, it kind of looks like uh, a laser when it goes off or something like that. Now, we don't know. But it's a description of someone who's rather shiny. In fact, uh, all those gems have one characteristic in common. They all are luminescent. They all shine. And by the way, if you were to take a look at other sections of Scripture, Daniel 10.6, other places in Ezekiel, Revelation 1.15, what's the characteristic that we see continually of divine beings or God or, or Jesus when he is glorified? They shine. They're shiny. It makes me wonder when Eve took of the fruit and she ate, did she stop shining? And I mean, you know, then Adam could say, well, you're in trouble. I can tell now. I, I, don't, I don't know. You know, it, it doesn't tell us. But we do know that these divine beings have a shiny presence. And it kind of tells us that this is of God. Remember Moses, every time he talked to God, his face would start shining. He had to cover it up because it was scaring everybody. I mean, you know, it would scare me too if somebody's face just started shining all the time because they're with God. We all should be like that. It's also possible that the, all these stones have another significance too. It could be also that one of the functions that Satan had was he also represented all the other divine beings, all, everybody else before God. He was, uh, he was their union leader or whatever you want to call it. So, and, and, and we don't know that for sure, but it does seem to look like it, that he might have been a representative before him. But stop and think. He had a lot of face time with God, didn't he? Anybody God talked to, he was there because he's the throne guardian. He's always there. So when God talked to Adam and Eve, he was there all the time. So why did he fall? 
How did, how did he wind up developing this rather inflated self-sense of worth that we see in Isaiah 14 uh, while he's in the throne room? Now, again, remember, this is where Adam and Eve is. This is where God is. He may have been talking with any of them. But we also see he's an anointed cherub. He's a covering cherub. He's a throne guardian. He has a special position. But in Isaiah 14, going back to that, verses 12 to 14, he starts saying in his heart, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, over and over. It's interesting to me that if you look at the Ten Commandments, Nine of them are things that you see somebody do. One, you can't. It's called coveting. It's in the heart. starts in the heart. This is what's going on. God knows what's going on in his mind. God knows what's in Satan's mind. So he reads it. So Satan's sin, as it's explained here in Isaiah, we've, we've got, well, five things that he wants to do. He wants the highest heavenly position. He's already the throne guardian of God. He wants God's place. Good perks. He wants that. He wants regal rights in heaven and on earth. Number three, he wants to be recognized as a Messiah. He wants that kind of recognition. Number four, he wants glory that belongs to God and God alone. And lastly, he wants to be like the Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Again, borrowing from the language of Ezekiel 28, he becomes hopelessly enamored with his own brilliance. He does. And he actually places himself above all of his peers, all the other divine beings. He says, I'm better than any of them. Not true, but he actually thought himself that way. Now, back in Ezekiel 28, we see this reference to uh, musical instruments where it talks about gold and the sockets. Uh, That also probably means he led worship, too. So when Adam and Eve came to worship God... Lucifer may be the one who was leading the worship. Don't know, but it leads to that when you start reading all of these things. And he probably led in priestly worship. So by the conclusion of verse 13 in, in uh, Ezekiel 28, we see that he's specifically created with beauty and wisdom, a shining appearance. He has a covering uh, that is shiny. Uh, he represents all the divine creation before God. He leads them in worship. He was made specifically for that. And it says he was blameless in his ways from the day he was created until unrighteousness was found in him. One day, there it was. It just, it, the, the Hebrew just kind of says, bang, there it was. Well, he was thinking about this stuff the entire time, it says in Isaiah, but he did something that brought it all out. This is the closest the Bible ever gets to saying that this is where sin started. Satan was perfect in all his ways until wrongdoing was found in him. He was perfect. He did something. What was it? Well, was it the secret sin where he wanted to do all these things? Could be. But he's a cherub. He's a throne guardian. Uh, He's shiny. He may have a serpent-like appearance. In fact, seraphim, which we also see in the scriptures, book of Isaiah talks about them, they're actually winged serpents based on the description that we see in the scriptures. So, again, looking at it, he is also have the seal of perfection. And in the Hebrew, that word could also mean, if you take a vow, if you take one of the words out, serpent, not serpent, but it means not seal, but serpent. So he could be a serpent or serpent-like in appearance as well. So what have you got? Well, we know that in Genesis 3, we're not dealing with an animal. 
But most people think, well, it's a snake or a serpent that had legs. I don't think so. He could have, could, could he have, could have, say, could have Lucifer gone into a, a willing serpent? Yeah, possible. But I think all the descriptions that we see in the scripture, he's an anointed guardian cherub uh, in the divine sense that he probably was serpent-like too. So then we come to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. God didn't say that. She added to his word. And here is where Satan becomes the number one serial killer of the world. This is his mode of operation. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Did you catch it? He operates by lying. That's what he does. That's his mode of operation. He lies continuously. It's his nature. He said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Could it be that Lucifer possessed the serpent? Yeah, it could be. But the, the word nakash has three meanings, actually. It can mean a divine throne guardian, a serpent. It could mean a diviner or divination or somebody from the divine realm. And it also could mean somebody who's shiny, the shiny one. He's a throne guardian and may have had this type of appearance. And he is destroyed, it says in verse 20, chapter 28, verse 16. By the abundance of his trade, he's talking to all of the other divine beings, and he also talked to Adam and Eve. I always wondered why Eve wasn't shocked when this serpent started talking to her. Probably because she's talked to him before. Maybe, maybe not. Don't know. Scripture's not clear. But you start looking at this, and if that is indeed the case, then the fall is a lot more insidious in terms of what took place than what we actually understand. Lucifer had access to all the divine beings. And he was able to eventually convince a full third of them that what he was doing was the right thing to do. And they rebelled against their own creator. Oh, he also took Adam and Eve with him too. So we were talking about that event, that thing that caused unrighteousness. He tempted Adam and Eve. In Revelation 12.4 was where we see that a third of the stars fall with him. It's where we get the third of the angels. Um, but also remember this about him as well. This is, again, talking about Lucifer. Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, says that they are of their father in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is the first serial killer, and he did it by lying. And Eve bought it, and Adam bought it, and ever since then, we've all had to deal with this thing called death. Didn't exist prior to the fall. He killed all of us. And he wants to kill us spiritually as well, not just physically. Jesus Christ paid that price for us, but he still lies. 
He wants us to be ineffective as believers. He wants us to not come to him. He, come to Jesus. He, he wants us to, well, he's the father of lies. That's what it says there in John 8, 44. Whenever he speaks, he lies, and it's from his own nature. So anytime Satan says anything, he's lying. Anytime. So Lucifer sinned. He was the first sinner in the divine realm. The first one. And he got kicked out of the mountain of God as profane. Oh, so were Adam and Eve. They were kicked out too. So when we get to the end of chapter 3 in Genesis, there are three creatures that have been kicked out of the presence of God. Lucifer, Adam, and Eve. Wow. You think he was successful with what he wanted to do? Create a rebellion? Yeah. Was he successful in getting what he wanted? I don't think so. He probably wanted Adam and Eve to worship him, and that didn't happen. They said they could be like God, and that's the, one of the problems that we've had ever since. We all want to be like God, and we want to worship ourselves. And Jesus says that we should be worshiping God. We should be worshiping him. By the way, the word destroyed here in uh, Ezekiel doesn't mean he was destroyed as a person, but he was destroyed from his position. He's no longer the covering cherub. He's no longer the throne guardian of God. He, got, he lost his job. Uh, he doesn't have the right to do a lot of things anymore because he lost his job. And his heart, it says in Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And God says, I cast you to the ground and I put you before kings that they may see you. Lucifer's problem, he was filled with pride. Why does God hate pride? Lucifer. Why does God talk about sins that we can think about and then we act on? Lucifer. Why does he say that, that we shouldn't lie? Lucifer. I mean, it all starts there. And then we just start, well, you know, if it worked for him, it will work for us, and we, we keep doing the same thing. Why does God hate pride so much? Because of that. In Proverbs 8.13, he says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. What happened to Lucifer's wisdom? He was perfect in all his ways. He was really a wise guy. Now he's a wise guy. Okay? He was corrupted by his wisdom. He was so smart that he began to think, I'm smarter than anybody. I can do anything. And he tried to, and it didn't work. But the problem is, as he keeps telling us today, you can do anything. You can be anything you want. You can, you can ignore God. You can, you can do your own thing. No, we can't. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Period. And then Lucifer will say, but there are many ways. Let's try Buddhism over here, or let's try this, or let's try that. No, there's one way. What's everything else? It's a lie. Where does it come from? Lucifer, that guy back there in Genesis 3. If you've been rejecting God, if you've been rejecting what Jesus wants to do in your life, if you've been walking away from him when he says, this is something for you for the future, it's because we're not listening to the Lord there's another voice we're listening to. And what, is he, what does he do? From, what's his nature? He's a liar. I listened to his lies for years. I thought I was going to be a great pagan. Didn't work out. I figured out he was lying to me. After I became a believer, I kept listening to some of those lies. That didn't work out either. Once I finally realized he's lying to me, even though it might be a good thing, he's lying to me. God gives me his directions through his word, this supernatural book, and tells me what he wants to do. And I have to follow him. And that's, all, that's what we all have to do. So is that interesting? Do you now understand that this is a person? 
This is not an idiom of evil. He's active and alive today. He hasn't changed his operation. He still lies to each one of us. And we have to understand that and not listen to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the supernatural aspect of it and the fact that you want to show us things from your scriptures. And as showing it to us, we're able to define and see what it is and how it is you want us to live. We would just ask that you would help us not to hear the lies of Satan. Help us to know the difference between what you and your word says and what you're leading us to under the power of the Holy Spirit versus what Satan wants us to do. Help us to understand that, Father. Help us to walk in your paths. Help us to follow you. Lord, if there's anybody here right now who has been listening to those lies, we would just ask that they would take this moment, this absolute moment of time, to realize that the lie you can wait until later is a lie. And that right now is the time of salvation. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you want us all with you forever. And we would just help, ask that you would help us to continually live and tell others about you. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.